So Job 40, verse 6. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man, and I will question you, and and you will make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God? Can you thunder with a voice like this? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase them. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then I will also acknowledge you that your own right hand can save you. Behold, behemoth, which I made as I made you. He eats grass like an ox. Behold, his strength in his loins and power in the muscles of his belly. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze and his limbs are like bars of iron. He is the first of the works of God. Let him who made him bring near his sword. For the mountains yield food for him where they, where all the wild beasts play. Under the lotus plants he lies and in the shelter of the reeds and in the marsh. For his shade, the lotus tree covers him. The willows of the brook surround him. Behold, if the river is turbulent, he is not frightened. He's confident through Jordan rushes against his mouth. Can one take him by his eyes or pierce his nose with a snare? This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, I am praying that the message that we receive from the book of Job will not be a message that is merely just for us this morning. We are asking that your spirit would apply it to our lives for this Coming week and month and years ahead, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm not sure if you've been to one of those burrito uh, restaurants, those Mexican restaurants where you order uh, a burrito and they're doing the, the toppings right there in front of you or the, you know, the filling of the burrito. You know, I'm thinking of like a Chipotle where if you're like me, you're saying, I would like it all, please. And so by the time you get down to the end of of the line and they wrap this burrito and it becomes very clear uh, this tortilla shell is not going to hold all of what you have stuffed into this thing. So you see them scrambling to grab another tortilla shell and new foil because it ripped and, and, and I just want to holler at the guy say, look, you know, would you please just separate it? I could go for two burritos. I got breakfast and lunch. And so, um, you know, that would be preferred, but, but somehow they stuff it all in. When I was preparing this section of this closing section of Job this coming week, I felt like I had taken too much trying to stuff it in and just wrap it up and it was starting to explode. By the time I had worked my way through chapter 38 through 41, I realized these poor folks, I, because I love you, because I love you, I wanted to punt on chapter 42 and uh, not keep you here forever. And so this week we will look at uh, answering questions with questions from 38 through 41. Next week will be Resurrection Sunday in which we will be in Genesis chapter 3. And then when the, gal- the gals will be gone at uh, uh, the retreat the following week. And then when we- they come back, we will conclude the book of Job in, in chapter 42. Um, so I thank you all for being patient as we wait 
long in this book, but I just want to assure you that Job sat in his suffering longer than you have sat under the suffering of the preaching of this book. And so, as I, as I begin here entering in, I want to remind you, though, that this is a book, really, that is for people not with armchair questions. Uh, This is a book for people who are actually entering in or experiencing pain and suffering in their life. Friends, this is not for the armchair. This is for the wheelchair. This is a book for people who are dealing with questions of real pain and heartache. It's for those who are dealing with cancer or divorce uh, or great sin. The Lord giving, the Lord taking away chaos in your life. This is not for the philosophers in the ivory towers. This is a book for the hurting people, for grandmas and grandpas here this morning who are grieving over their lost children or grandchildren. Uh, This is a book for faithful yet lonely Christians who have longed for a spouse for years and years and years, and yet none has come. It's for those who are deeply troubled by mental health trials, by depression. And for those who would wish that it would all end and just say, Lord, would you just take me home now? And as I opened up, this book of Job is for my, one of my friends uh, whose wife has been dealing with a terminal lung condition and they have spent more time in the hospital than anybody would have ever imagined. Uh, this is a book for my other friend whose son is still Making, trying to make a comeback from a brain tumor that was removed many years ago and is not perfectly well. Uh, th- this is a book for, for me and my wife as we look one of my daughters in the eyes and at times we say, do we even recognize our own daughter? Friends, this is a book for real people with real suffering. And finally, As we hear from the Lord this morning, you and I, we will stare evil and suffering right in the face. You and I are going to see a hope rise as we cling to our God and our Savior in spite of the pain and the suffering. And the question that I'm asking that you and I would wrestle with this morning is whether or not evil and suffering is like a dog that has been unleashed and now is rabid running around. Is it so that suffering and evil, that that they are able to free roam, that they are able to do as they will? Will suffering and evil ever come to an end? Recall that the tension of this entire book is that Job, Job, this blameless man um, who trusts in the Lord, he is a genuine believer and he has everything stripped of him, his career, his health, his livestock, his, his own children, the affection of his wife, the respect of his friends were removed from him. And, and really at the end of it all, Job has lost all dignity. He has nothing left to hang his hat on. In our vernacular, we would say that Job is going through hell. And Satan had placed a big bet, a big bet on Job having lost everything he says that when Job has had, had everything taken away from him, he bets that Job would curse God. And yet, as Job suffers, Job worships. And 
And meanwhile, as he's worshiping, as he's remaining in faith, he longs for redemption. He begins to question even the goodness of God. Could it be that God is in the wrong here? The fact that God would allow this pain and suffering in his life. The question is, how will a good God allow this evil and this suffering to remain in his life? And this leads Job to say, should I accuse the Lord of wrongdoing? Well, in chapter 38, for the first time, we hear from the Lord. For some 35 chapters, Job is sat in his pain and his heartache and his suffering, crying out for vindication, but none has come. And longing not to just be lifted out of the suffering, but be pulled out of this place where he's been in this seat that says, guilty until proven innocent. Job says, I want vindication that I will be declared blameless and just as I believe I am. Because he's been asking over and over, why? Why? Why am I suffering like this? And the the answer that the three friends recall, the three friends that they had given is, Job, you are suffering because you are in sin. And then this character that made us scratch our head a little bit, Elihu comes on the scene and he says, Job, and he has a much more nuanced, much better answer, says, Job, you're not in suffering because of your sin, but it seems as if your sin or your suffering has led you to sin, as it were. And it's interesting here because now, at this point, the Lord will finally speak and he will begin to bring questioning answers. He will say, Job, Let me answer you by asking you some questions. And when you answer those questions, well, it's not going to answer all of your own questions, but at least it's going to bring some satisfaction. It's going to bring some needed relief. And so he begins with the poetic language language to essentially ask, where were you when I created everything? And we see this in chapter 38. If you turn back with me to 38 verses 1 through 7. This is the first we hear of the Lord here, where he says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is it that darkens counsel with words by words without knowledge? So recall that at the beginning of this book, there was the counsel of the Lord, the angels, the angelic beings that met with the Lord. So who is it that darkens the counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you will make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determines its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Then the Lord here after this, he will expand by asking, where were you when I created the sea, the clouds, the night, the dawn? Interestingly enough here, the Lord is poking at this theme of darkness. And I think this is important to see, where were you when I created not just the day, but the night? Because this darkness has been a theme that runs through this book. This whole section running from 38 to 41 has a sense of wickedness and heaviness and darkness over it. Which I think is helpful for you and I, because the Lord is even using this imagery of waves. He says, uh, Uh, You know, I'm saying that the waves can come only this far and no further. Now, recall for those in the ancient Middle East, the idea of the sea, it was a place of, of darkness and chaos. 
It, it represented death in a way. And so he, it, the Lord says, where were you when I created these waves, the sea that can only go this far, but no further? I've drawn a line and said, you shall go no further, which we begin to remember even the Lord at the beginning of this book saying, Satan, you may only go this far and no further. So then in verse 18, Job, do you even understand how big the earth has been created? And we see in verse 21, the Lord, be, is, the Lord is sarcastic here where he says, You know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great. The, uh, the New Living Translation, I think, paints the sarcasm super thick. You can't miss it because it reads, But of course you know all this, Job, for you were born before it was all created, and you are so very experienced, aren't you, Job? That's right, Job. You presume to know a lot when you didn't create this well-ordered world, which leads the Lord to highlight other aspects of creation, such as the constellation of stars and lightning and thunder and weather systems, along with animals such as birds of prey. And then in chapter 39, the Lord asks Job if he can tell him when the mountain goats are born or how it all works when the wild donkey uh, is running in the plains Or to consider the foolishness of the ostrich, a big, huge bird, uh, much like a big bird of Sesame Street, this big bird that can't fly. The ostrich is crazy for it leaves its eggs out on the open ground where any old animal could just come and snatch it or or step on it. Uh, Look at chapter 39 at verse 13, how the Lord pokes at this. He says, the wings of the ostrich wave proudly, but... Are they pinions and plumage of love? For she leaves her eggs on the earth and lets them be warmed on the ground, forgetting that a foot may crush them and that the wild beasts may trample them. And then she deals cruelly with her young, as if they were not hers, though her labor be in vain, yet she has no fear, because God has made her forget wisdom and given her no share of understanding. When she rouses herself to flee, she laughs at the horse and his rider. Job, these are my creatures, (laughs) and and I created them to be foolish for my purpose. Recently, my wife and I were watching a little video of this ostrich that was, this guy was on a farm with a bunch of these ostriches, and, and, and the moment he turned his back, one of them came and zapped him right in the back, and his neck was bleeding. I mean, these are just goofy, wild creatures. And, and I think the sense is, Job, you, you didn't come up with this stuff. You didn't come up with this, nor the wild horses, verse 19, nor with the soaring hawk, verse 26. No, the, these, these amazing creatures and these goofy creatures, these were all my idea, the Lord says. Then in chapter 39, at verse 27, he highlights the hawk here where he says, or the eagle, is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes its nest up on high? On the rock he dwells and makes his home, and on the rocky crag stronghold from there he spies out the prey, and his eyes behold it far or from far away, and his young ones suck up blood, and where the slain are, there he is. You know, I know many of you have seen, we, we have eagles right here, do we not? Bald eagles right here, and right on the river, right out back, I've seen them down at our home, we've seen them. And I would love for one of them to just come into my backyard or just come out here into the parking lot just so I could see it. But you know that's not how it works. You can't tell these things what to do. You can't tame an eagle. No. They have amazing vision, amazing strength. 
And to think that they can carry out, you know, fish out of the, out of the water there that are practically heavier than they are. It's incredible, isn't it? And, and I was even reflecting as I was reading this, just thinking about the grandeur and glory of birds. And, you know, more recently, we've, we've had a lot of hummingbirds coming and going. And at our place, we have one of those, you know, classic red feeders and that we put the sugar water in. And it was interesting back with the cold snap not too long ago where we were dipping down, you know, below 25 at night. You know, I was seeing these hummingbirds come and go and I was thinking, how on earth did these things make it at night? I mean, I have chicken breasts in the refrigerator that if I put out at night, they'd be frozen in the morning. How is it that one of these little tiny guys makes it at night? And so I looked it up where I found out their heart rate during the day, 1,250 beats per minute, drops down to 40 beats per minute at night when it goes below freezing like that, and they enter a hibernation state essentially at night so that they can survive the cold snap before their heart rate slowly rises in the morning and they come back to life. Now friends, if my heart rate goes from 1250 down to 40, you better call an ambulance. But in God's wisdom and his design, the way he created these things, it's amazing that they're able to do this. And and this leads the Lord again to address Job in chapter 40 at verses 1 through 9, where he says here, and and the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. And then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer. Twice and I will, not proceed, I will proceed no further. And then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God? Can you thunder with a voice like his? Okay, Job, dress like a man. I have a second round for you. If you weren't there when I created all this, if you weren't there when I set up this well-ordered world, how is it that you want to charge me with wrong? Job, are you wise and strong like me? I think you should be quiet, Job. You see, shortly before Clement Attlee in England won the, the, the uh, victory in the British general election of 1945, he had a lot of trouble from the chairman of the Labor Party, this one professor. He apparently kept writing him and writing him and writing him and saying, you're not doing it right. You're not doing your job right. Why don't you just resign? Why don't you just stop? And finally, Attlee wrote him back to one of these tiresome letters and he said these pointed words. A period of silence would be most welcome from you. And I think God sometimes needs to say that to us. To say, as he did here to Job, My dear Job, I want to thank you for your 20-some chapters worth of letters telling me how to run the world and suggesting that you could do it better than I am. But you know what? A period of silence would be most welcome from you now. And Job gets the message. He says, Lord... I'm not your equal, so I'm just going to zip the lip and be quiet. You see, if God was not a God of grace, how could have he responded in this case? I think he would have responded by saying, Job, you're wrong to judge me. Who do you really think you are? Therefore, you will face judgment. You want to judge me? I'm going to judge you now. I think he could have said that and Job would have been in a bad position. 
But no, our God of grace, he reasons with him. He could have ignored his pain or come to judge him or never spoke at all. But the God of grace comes to speak with Job and help him see God. He he says, essentially, I want you to see I'm up to far more. I'm up to so much more, Job, than you ever knew. Can you explain this creation? I don't think you can. And therefore, just you're going to have to sit humbly knowing that I've got more going on than you realize. And he does this in a few different ways. First, he makes it clear that the world was set up by a God who knew what he was doing. From the night to the day to the eagle to the ostrich. I know what I'm doing. It's my creative design. Even things foolish. Even things strange. But then second, we now get to a very interesting bit. The behemoth and the Leviathan. I think we in some ways kind of are coming to the crux of what the Lord wants to get, get across to Job. Here God is moving from creatures that we can relate to. Something that's a bit more strange, something that you and I may struggle with, at least struggle to wrap our minds around. So recall how we opened up this morning. I began by reading about the behemoth, uh, this creature that when you put all the pieces of the puzzle together and, and you say, what is this behemoth? And you kind of are stacking going, okay, this, this beast is massive. It's scary. It's likely, from, this, from the sense of it, probably not in existence now. I mean, from the very description, it seems like it's a woolly mammoth-like creature that's tail is like that of a dinosaur. If you go look up, um, and if there are any kids, go, go look up later, uh, Dread, Dreadnoughtus. Uh, the dinosaur Dreadnoughtus is, seems to have a tail like that of a cedar tree. I mean, their tails are something like three to four feet in diameter. And, and so this beast, whatever the Lord seems to be describing here exactly, this is a beast that you cannot just tame. This is not like a house cat where you, where you put a, a, a collar on it and, and, and say, you, you're going to you know, stay here with me. No. It's the first of God's creatures, meaning not that it was the very first one created, but it's the, the, it's the highest position on the, on the food chain. Nobody's eating this, this behemoth. This behemoth is eating the grass, and, and, and nobody's going to be able to, to tackle it. See, the only one who can come to this one is the one who can bring a sword near it, verse 19, is the one who created it. We may think of the only one who can slay this beast is the one who's got the sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. The one who creates by his word and brings judgment by his word. No, hold, we, we hold this image in mind of the behemoth. This is a massive, scary creature. And yet at the same time, there's another one that's on the scene here, the Leviathan. I think it's more terrifying in its description. It's a beast of the sea, almost like a Loch Ness monster. If, if you're kind of, let me stack on this picture, this imagery of what this Leviathan is. You ask yourself, this thing sounds crazier than a crocodile. You know, some of the things like, could this be a crocodile? This seems a little bit more than a crocodile. This is, in some ways, maybe even more than a dinosaur. Because look at, look at chapter 41 and pick up with me here at verse 18 through 21. This is the Leviathan. His sneezings flash forth light. His eyes are like the eyelids of the dawn. Out of his mouth go flaming torches. 
Sparks of fire leap forth. Out of his nostrils comes forth smoke as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. His breath kindles coals and a flame comes forth from his mouth. Are you you getting the picture? His eyes are red and he's fire breathing. (laughs) So this this is a description of a creature that's out of fairy tales and legends, is it not? I mean, this is a fire breathing dragon. Now, I may be out on a limb here, and I'm not expecting that all of us are going to find some amazing agreement on this, but but understand just as in our day, so too in Job's day, creatures were assigned some sort of personality, you know, so that when you talk about a creature, you kind of immediately identify with it something about it, uh, so that we talk about, you know, this guy, this guy's just a dog. Well, when we say that, this guy's just a dog, we mean he's really lazy, you know, he's just a sack of bones, he doesn't accomplish much. Or when we say, um, you know, she is just my, my little bird, she's my lovely little bird. When we say something like that, we mean this girl or this woman, she's endearing to me, I just really love her. Um, if we say somebody's a monkey, or you know, or you know, one of my daughters, she's a monkey. Well, then that means that they're busy, uh, they're bouncing, they're active, they're like a clown, maybe. Or we say something is a bear of a job. You know, you're you're dealing with plumbing under the sink. Oh, this has just become a bear of a job. What do you mean? Well, you mean that this job, as I'm kind of wrestling and tackling it, it's pushing back, it's fighting back on me, it's not easy, it's difficult. Okay, so. See, if animals and creatures have personalities that we sort of assign to them, and if that's true, a few verses help us understand what is it that the Leviathan, this creature, is in connection with? What is it being pictured as? Well, look at verse 21. His breath kindles coals, and a flame comes forth from his mouth. Okay? That's interesting. Keep reading. In his neck abides strength, and terror dances before him. The folds of his flesh stick together, firmly cast on him, immovable. And then catch verse 24. His heart is hard as stone, hard as the lower millstone. Ah, this is interesting. A hard heart. This fire-breathing-like dragon has a hard heart. And then we skip down to verse 33, where we read that on earth there is not his like, a creature without fear. Verse 34, he sees everything that is on high. He is the king over all the sons of pride. This fire-breathing dragon with red eyes that has a hardened heart, that is one that is over the sons of pride, a ruler of this world, because nobody seems to have a place over him. He is not fearing of anyone. And if that wasn't enough to get our minds stirring to say, what is it that is being connected with this beast, this Leviathan? Well, one other great passage is Isaiah chapter 27 at verse 1, where the description reads like this. Now catch these key words. In that day, the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent. Leviathan, the twisting serpent, he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. Now, reminding us that 
Much of Job here is poetry. Several scholars, I think, have done helpful work to show the behemoth in connection with some Canaanite gods seems to have a representative form of death. And and the Leviathan, in, in connection most likely with Satan here. You see, behemoth and Leviathan are emblematic of death and Satan. And were they perhaps real animals? I'm, I'm not here to dispute that. Probably, maybe, I, I don't know. That, that doesn't seem to be the big issue. The big issue is, just like you and I might connect an understanding with creatures, with the way people function and, and the people that you know, so too I think God is saying, you see these creatures. Job, these are my creatures. Job is saying here, I, I think if this is the way to understand it, that Job, the way the Lord is speaking to Job at the end here is to say, essentially, Job, where were you when I created everything? Everything serves its purpose. Where were you when I created the stars and the planets and the wild horses and the donkeys, Job? Were you there when I created all this? Was all this your plan? The world, the fall, the darkness, the light, even, yes, death and Satan, No, Job, these were all part of my grand plan. These all are part of my redemptive purposes. Yes, even the Leviathan, to which I'm suggesting is a representative of Satan. And to quote Martin Luther, Satan is God's Satan, which means that he is to man an uncontrollable, a foul beast. But to God, no, he's a pawn. He is just a tool in the hands of God for his purposes. And when I think what Isaiah is hinting at, I think what the book of Job here is trying to help us see is that God himself created Satan even before the fall of the angels, long, long before. Don't think that God didn't know what was going to come about. No, God is all-knowing. He knew what was going to happen with the fall of the angels. He knew what was going to happen with the fall of man. Yeah, our Lord is all-knowing. And even though the accuser seemed to make up part of the counsel of God, but now that he has aligned himself against his creator, Satan will fight, and he will fight, and he will fight, and he will only begin to dig himself a deeper hole. If you could picture one who's in quicksand, and who, as they're going down in the quicksand, is going down fighting, kicking, and screaming. That's the picture of the Leviathan. That's the picture of the dragon. And God, I think, is using this Leviathan to say, you know what? The Leviathan, as he talks about earlier, he says he's not a bird. Uh, Job, this Leviathan is not some sort of bird that your kids could play with. That's what he speaks of. No, he is not a beast that you can put on a leash like a dog. But friends, the reason Job is so humbled, as we will see in a few weeks, is because Job may not be able to leash this Leviathan, but God can. The promise from Genesis chapter 3 is that God would ultimately send forth the son who would crush the head of the serpent, who would crush the head of the dragon. And the question that you and I must wrestle with is how will he do it? How will he do it? How would God have victory over the behemoth, over the Leviathan, with lightning bolts coming down from the sky? No. Would he snap his fingers and say, enough of you devil, I'm just done? No. Would he give you and I billy clubs and swords and shields and hand to go off and attack this dragon? No. No, friends. Rather, to secure an end to them, God, the true and blameless one, must suffer 
a lot like Job. In order to have victory over this Leviathan, over this behemoth, God himself would come into a place to be like Job, where he himself would be crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? No, this isn't much of part of the the New Testament that we understand. Hebrews chapter 2 says it very plainly, explaining this, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, meaning we share in, in you and I in death and suffering, he, meaning Jesus, himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who fear of death were subjected to a lifelong slavery. Friends, the reason that you and I have been under the tyranny of the devil is because of sin. The Bible makes it clear in Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3 that you and I sold out to the ways of the devil, the dragon. And there is a beast who now demands your allegiance and you owe him a debt. And this debt will cost you your very soul. It'll cost you your very life, friends. And thank Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that he came to pay that debt. That he came to pay it with his life and to free us from the chains and terror and tyranny of the dragon. And that you and I this morning, if you're in Christ We have no fear then of this Leviathan. We have no fear of whatever comes because perfect love casts out fear. We won't fear the battle. We won't fear the night. We won't fear the valley with him by our side. No, the sting of death is sin, but praise God, he is victorious over sin and death. And so then back to my question as I opened up with this morning. Are evil and suffering, are they like a dog that is unleashed? Are they able to roam free and able to do as they will? Will suffering and evil ever come to an end? Well, just a a quick sneak peek. I want to get into this and we'll come back. Look at chapter 42. Just look at the first two verses. Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Do you see what essentially Job is getting at? Lord, I didn't create this world. I didn't create all these animals. I didn't create all these beings. Lord, I, the, none of this was part of my plan. Not even the awful beasts, but you did. So who can stop these things that created them? Well, for God, he says, you can stop all things. You can do all things. You can stop the Leviathan. You can stop the behemoth. Lord, you could bring an end to my suffering. And isn't that our hope? Isn't that our hope this morning? So, Christian, as you consider the need to tell others about this gospel, do you live as though death and Satan are unleashed? Or as if God has truly everything under control? Do you live, Christian, as if everything is going according to to plan? Do your unbelieving friends and family look in your life and say, here is one who's on the roller coaster of life and we don't know where it goes, but they seem to have affixed in their heart a hope and a trust and a God who is sovereignly over all things, even death and sin and the dragon. Are you able, 
Like 1 Peter chapter 3 says, But in your hearts honor Christ as Lord, as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you. And yet do this with gentleness and respect. So that when the next global pandemic comes, and it probably will come, or when the next nuclear war comes, and that may come too, or the next time that you receive a scan from the doctor or a pink slip from your employer, are others able to look in and say, I know God can do all things. I see that in this person's life. And that the waves may come, but the Lord has established and said, you may go this far and no further. Do you have that fixed in your heart this morning? Are you able in the end to be like Job and see that not just will Job's name be vindicated, but the Lord's name God himself will be vindicated. Do you have hope in a God like this? This morning, I'd like to close with a quote from Elizabeth Elliot because she understood this book and she had a trust in God. If you don't know about Elizabeth Elliot this morning, uh, she was the wife of Jim Elliot, who was murdered while he was trying to reach the Wadani tribe. Um, and she went herself through all sorts of heartache and trial. She lost two husbands, uh, one murdered and the other one sadly lost to, to cancer. And she, she had a lot of heartache and, and trials in her life and reasons to walk away from the Lord. But here's what she said as she reflected on Job. She said, God is God. And if he is God, he is worthy of my worship in my service. And I will find rest nowhere, but in his will. And that will is infinitely, immeasurably, and unspeakably beyond my largest notions of what he is up to. Friends, we may not know what he's up to, but we can trust him in these things. In fact, Elizabeth Elliot, when she was asked, what is the main point of Job? Uh, She simply said, trust me. Trust me. And so this morning, I call, call you, the one who created everything. And he's using all these things in his way, in his timing. Trust him. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you uh, for the book of Job and giving us a vision behind the veil. And Lord, I pray that you would affirm in us. I, I know there are times, Lord, where we question, like Job, saying, is God good in this? Is he right to allow me to endure this or to go through this? But I pray that you would give us uh, an ability to cover our mouths and say, Lord, we, we spoke once. We won't say anything else. We will just say we know that God can do all things. He's able to bring a sword against our enemy. He's able to prevent us from being overwhelmed by the waves of darkness. So we praise you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.